Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 143rd episode of MDG Fast Finance, the podcast that loves a free t-shirt. MDG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MDG Critic on Twitter. My co-host, as always, is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin, and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening, James. How are you doing tonight? Very good, sir. How are you? Doing just fine. Fine enough. Uh... Lot to go, lot going on this week. We had all the Ultimate Master stuff, uh, the news, the news, and the official announcement. By the way, I have a official sealed box topper in my hand right now Ooh. that I have not opened yet. And we have the Pro Tour this weekend. All sorts of cool stuff. Um, I haven't got my box topper. My father got his. Uh, I'm a little worried because we have similar names and our stuff went to similar addresses. That they may have decided that. It was a one per household situation <laughs> and he's already claimed it and opened it. So I'm on pins and needles now as to whether I'm getting mine. That's a bummer. sounds like you are out a, <laughs> I, I, I may be out of luck. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's not like I'm complaining about mythic edition, but yeah. you know, I, uh, I am going to try and, uh, um, search it later. Uh, I, I was reading about how to do it and I want to try it later on, um, see if I can figure it out. And then I think what I'm going to do is if I, if I can actually get what I feel like as a read on the card, I'll make a video, uh, and say, okay, this is, I, this is what I did. This is what I think's in the side. And then we're going to open it and see if I'm right. Uh, just to kind of have some video evidence one way or the other. I mean, I think you just kind of like put the light at an angle and I have a feeling that the, the wrappers are probably fairly opaque straight on, but that at like a 45 degree angle, they probably let, let, let enough light through that you can see a couple of letters and figure out the name. Yeah. I'm going to have to play with it a little later, but that's the idea. See what happens. Um, okay. Our show is sponsored by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. So what's on the agenda this week, big guy? Uh, is it a fat joke? <laughs> no. You looked very trim when I saw you last weekend. <laughs> uh, that's a custom suit. It's intended to make me look trim. <laughs> <laughs> uh, segment one is our... Te- and, and, and just specify that I am not, but that's why you buy a nice suit, because it makes you look better. Uh, segment one, our top movers. We'll look at the cards that have moved the most in price over the last week. Segment two, cards to watch. James and I will talk about some of the cards that we think uh, are poised to gain in value. Segment three, our metagame week in review. There's a standard mocks that we'll touch on. There was also a uh, the Modern Grand Prix at Atlanta this past weekend. Um, I don't know. Maybe we'll touch on that uh, with the Pro Tour this weekend. Being standard, the Modern GP seems a little less relevant. And finally, our topic of the week, uh, Ultimate Masters. Um, and what we do and don't know, give you guys some as much insight as we can manage there. So let's start off uh, segment one, our top movers. Boy, I can feel some congestion in my nose. And I just ate chili, and it still didn't kind of clear out. My chili's not spicy enough to get the sinus clearing of that. need that ginger, brother. Yeah, really. That's what I should dig out. Um, 
First card of the week, Azor's Gateway out of uh, Rivals of Ixalan. Non-foils, 10 to 13. So minor increase there, uh, but that's on standard demand for the most part. Um, now, is this the one that we talked about? No, that was Immortal Sun. No, Azor's Gateway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So last week, Azor's Gateway went 5 to 10 um, on the back of Just Guy Stanton Standard. Uh, and this week, it has continued to move a little bit, which is uh, kind of impressive. Yep, is part of the crop of standard cards that have uh, made people uh, a little bit of money this fall if they were on the ball. Um, doesn't include me for the most part. Um, I've been steering well clear of standard specs, but um, there's no denying that interest in standard was uh, more impressive this fall than it was the last couple of years. Yeah, yeah. At the you, we can definitely say, at the very least, standard is more interesting from our perspective than it was. Um, it's been very dry for several years. Uh, it's starting to look a little better, but we'll see how that changes. This should shape up for, as a pretty good pro tour. Um, the meta is not 100% settled. Like the archetypes uh, are not reduced down to a couple of decks. Um, and it doesn't seem like any one card is uh, in, in searching for a ban hammer or anything. Um, you've got four or five different like color combinations and then a ver- bunch of different ways to build. So it's about as good as you can expect Sander to get, really. Um, so it should be a good weekend for the Pro Tour. James, you're eating our entire segment three, man. <laughs> we'll get there. Uh, what's the, what's the after uh, Azure's Gateway? Sky Diamond from Commander 2014, a fairly infrequently printed card, um, and blue mana rocks are of uh, significant use in EDH. So no huge surprise to see these go from 250 to 4 for about a 67% gain. Um, these were available at some point, you know, a couple of years back at a dollar. You might be able to buy list them now, um, you know, probably close to what they're worth. If you got in at the, at the buck, um, you could probably be in for a double up, but it's not like it was ever a priority spec. So I don't expect very many people are sitting on a hundred copies of this. No, no. Uh, who, who would buy this card? Really? Sky diamond. Like, okay. Um, Following that, City of Brass, the JSS copies. There's an uh, acronym a lot of our listeners are probably unfamiliar with. That's the Junior Super Series. That was discontinued in like 2012 or something. Um, yeah. Might have even been before that. But City of Brass was in that promo, uh, in that grouping. They were $120 at the start of the week. We're looking at $225 now. So a pretty good, uh, pretty good double up there on a card of that nature. Um, the foiling on these is probably the worst foiling in Magic's history, um, at least in terms of popularity. Uh, every time Wizards lets out their little data about what's uh, what people like in terms of foil processes, this is at the bottom of the list. So I'm not expecting to see this come back anytime soon. Um, but if you're a fan, it's there for you. Uh, so double up on those. Supply is going to be very low. Um, and City of Brass has been uh, more popular than I would generally expect. Um, at least in like EDH and those types of places, uh, and even yeah, modern sometimes. So, uh, you know, I don't think this is going to be a $250 card necessarily, but you'll probably pay 170 or 180 if you want a copy, mostly because you're just not going to be able to find them. I took a look at supply. It's getting real low. There's some like overseas vendors on eBay and stuff, and there's like a few, a handful of copies available on TCG player, but it's real low. I think it will be a $250 card. It's just a question of time. Um, the thing is that this is in like 28,000 decks reported on EDH rec. So, I mean, even if it shows up occasionally in modern and has casual and collector demand, most of this is coming from EDH. 
Um, and you say that people don't like the foiling process, and I agree. Um, but they still look, they still look good in the sleeve. Um, it's, it's a little dark. Uh, is is my comment on this card. I've already bought and sold a couple of these uh, this year, and I've never had any trouble unloading them. Hmm. Uh, the I should go back to Sky Diamond for a second. I said you might be able to buy list it close to the stated price of two fifty. That's completely incorrect. Um, a couple of buy lists I just looked at aren't offering more than fifty cents. So looks like you have to sell them retail, which is selling four dollar cards at retail that you bought at one to two dollars is not where you want to be, as we've said hmm. many times. It's a good use of your time there. All right, so next on the list, we got Copperline Gorge from uh, uh, Scars of Mirrodin. Um, the non-foil is going from 12 for a double up to about 23 24 depending on where you're checking prices. Um, this is on the back of it being a four of in Modern Dredge, which has been ascendant lately, um, putting up some good results in some recent big tournaments. Um, no reprint on the horizon because it's, it's uh, locked out of being in uh, Ultimate Masters, given that the creature lands... Um, from World Wake are in there instead. Um, so, boom. Uh, one of the first resulting uh, spikes on the basis of that information. Wow, that's pretty cool. I've. Uh, you have any copper line stashed away? I, if I have them, they're like randomly in decks, so I gotta I guess I gotta like fish them out and sell them now? Go and looking for them. Yeah, I've got a bit of a stack. I was... I don't know if I want to sell them or if I want to be super greedy. I haven't decided quite yet what I'm going to do. Uh, but I mean, we just got the Manlands in Ultimate Master, so there's another chance for these to get reprinted gone. So it's like, where are they going to put these if they're coming back? It doesn't feel like a Guilds of Ravnica or whatever the next one's called. So like, if it's not that, you know, you've got a lot more good amount of more time before you have to worry about it. And Wizards said they're not doing another Masters anytime soon. So, like, we'll see some product, but it might not be the type of product to put those types of lands back into play. I don't know. Yeah, and I think there's a pretty good chance we get fetches in the latter half of 2019, one way or the other. Uh, if yeah. it's not in a standard set, it'll be in whatever the supplemental sets they already have alluded to that are not Master sets, but probably are pretty close to Master sets. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, Copperline Gorge, you probably want to get at it out of it maybe in a month or so anytime from now to a month from now you can't really bank on dredge staying hot it always seems to kind of fade in and out of the format so um you know there's no huge rush to unload them but you could probably start testing the waters it looks like buy lists are in the mid-teens depending on whether you're talking about cash or credit um and ideally you'd like that to get up closer to 20 right yeah yeah my goal is to forget about them uh, and and or be too lazy to sell them when I'm supposed to and then get lucky and have them go up in value even more. Uh, that's generally my preferred strategy. <laughs> All right. Following that is Azuria's Predation from Commander 2015. Non-foils, two to four. Uh, the worst price change you could possibly hope for, but still not too bad uh probably in good shape going forward um you know if you can still score these if you can score these at three dollars that's probably a safe buy right azuri's predation um because they're they're four dollars right now but uh you know if that supply keeps draining uh you're not gonna see a lot left yeah, there's 15. It's not the right kind now. of thing I want to make a prior. It's not the kind of thing I want to make a priority because again, this is the kind of card that could go from two to six or something, and buy list eventually drift up into the three to four dollar range. Um, it's just not in enough EDH decks for it to be something you want to be going after, despite it being a single printing card. 
Um, it's only reported in 2000 decks and it's had like three years to get there. So if it hasn't gotten there yet, then it probably isn't going yeah, to. Yeah, it's not a great, it's not a huge amount of decks. So, eh. If it got more popular. Next on the list, we got, yeah. Next on the list, we got Vernal Bloom foils from 7th edition, um, going from 20 to 60 in theory. I'm sure you can find them lower depending on where you're looking. Um, this is just yet another example of people targeting 7th edition foils over and over and over again. Um, this is a foil 7th edition rare. So if you want one, you probably already know that you need to be getting them if you're trying to complete a collection. And otherwise, it's a pretty low demand card in EDH. So it's unlikely that you're going to feel compelled to make it a 7th edition foil yeah. in your deck. Yeah, I was browsing 7th edition foils to see if there were any that I wanted to recommend people buy. And frankly, yes and no. Uh, I mean, you can just buy out any mint 7th edition foil for under $3. And I'm sure that in the very longest time frame, it will work out well for you. But is it worth buying... 60 you know well you're not gonna get 60 is it worth buying 25 or 15 copies of a dollar foil only to sell one every four months six years from now yeah that's the thing um on the topic of vernal bloom though the buy lists are in the high 20s to mid 30s so that justifies the motion on this in the sense that there was no risk to whoever picked up scooped up the last five or ten copies that were easily Mm. available um towards the lower end of the range um, and that's something you can be doing with 7th edition foils is that if you see buy lists roughly equivalent to TCG, TCG player or eBay costs or your, you know, whatever your random favorite online vendor is, um, then your play is kind of automatically backed. So you can go ahead and move into the card and move out whenever you think the, the getting is good or always use your backup plan and just ship it all back. Yes. to the buy list. Yeah, that's that as an option is always nice when you're talking about your specs because it just gives you a, a freebie, right? Like, you you know. The worst case scenario is that you essentially break even uh, or sometimes even better than that. Yeah. Next on the list, we've got Bloom Tender Foils from Sha... No, Eventide, right? Uh, Eventide. Like uh, in theory, moving from the mid-80s to about $300, at least on TCG Player. Um, I don't think I believe that number, um, but I do believe this is a $100 to $150 card. Um, that whole block... Uh, the uh, Eventide, Shadowmoor, um, Lorwyn uh, block, I guess it's called, um, was during a lull in Magic popularity. There wasn't very much of it, and it was a year where they had four standard sets instead of three. Um, uh, like, it wasn't a three-set block. It was a four-set block, so there was a little less of each um, on top of it being in an overall sales lull. And that has resulted in that coupled with many of these cards not getting reprinted has resulted in the original foils from these sets um, being pretty pricey if they are of use. This card in particular shows up in like 7,000 reported decks on EDH rec. Um, so it's a pretty rare foil. I saw, interestingly enough, I just saw this mentioned somewhere on a Facebook group yesterday where Dan Bach had posted um, call outs for anybody who wanted any card worth 100 or more. And somebody said they wanted one of these. And he said, I'll sell it to you for 90 if that hmm. thing is over 100. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> well, I think it represents more that this thing is not really a $300 card. <laughs> but the lowest price, it, price posted on TCG player yeah. maybe $300. I mean, nobody's um, paying 
three hundred dollars for an even tied foil, right? Like no one cares that much about Bloom Tender. It's not a reserveless card. You'll just wait for it to show up in whatever wherever they choose to reprint it. However, the supply on that is real low and it is a popular card and it still is popular today, right? Like the people are building decks that use this every day. Uh, the God, what's his name? Joel Rell or the dude from Superman, Joel Rial. Uh, the five color dude definitely likes this card, right? Cause that's the one where you can pay one of each color. Uh, there's, it has its uses. So 300, no, but uh, yeah, I can definitely see this, you know, being a hundred dollars in the same way that, you know, you might be able to pull that off with Oracle Mobile. It's just a matter of it, it will get reprinted. And when it does, you'll get blown out. Well, maybe, right? The original pack foil is still far enough removed that it almost certainly falls in the face of a reprinting. But part of that depends on art and whatever. This isn't like a super big time card. So yeah, the, the blowout is probably real. But for the time being, there's very, very little in inventory. Um, I think the 150 is probably more real than the 100. Yeah. But I don't know how long you'd have to post it on a major yeah. platform. Before and I, it, so. I mean, I, I agree. Like the original foil is going to be resilient uh, to an extent, right? Like to an extent, it'll be resilient, but we're not talking about Gaius Cradle and Judge promos where, I mean, really, there is no limit to what those things can cost because it's just not going to be anymore. So in any case, uh, following Bloom Tender is Malimo Maro Sorcerer from Invasion. Uh, foils 4 to 18. These are just people going after uh, early foils uh, and trying to snag up some some deals there because uh, he's a, a rare from that era. Uh, we've seen that a couple times now over the last several weeks, months. Uh, and in fact, we also, uh, following that, I'll just bang this out real quick. We have Ancient Silverback, same deal, Urza's Destiny foil, 3 to 25. Um, both of these are, you know, whatever you can get somebody to pay for. Nobody is looking for these cards. Uh, so, you know, if you have one, great. I would try and get rid of it. Yeah. Uh, all right, so then we got oh, Ancient I, Silverback. I just said that. Uh, pretty similar. I did both. Okay. All right, so moving right along to segment two, our cards to watch. Um, my first one this week is not a card, and if you've been following me on Twitter this week, you probably won't be too surprised. Um, also, if you read my article on MTG Price um, on the same topic, I think that Ultimate Masters is shaping up to be a pretty you, solid if set. If you follow James on Twitter, um, or you read his article, or you listen to the podcast, or you drove by his house and read the sign that he staked in his front lawn, or you looked at the pictures of the tattoos he got. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> fair enough. Um, and I think it's important, given how much chatter um, I've been laying down about this product, to be clear about its status. Uh, I went so far as to say on Twitter today that you could probably figure out $1,000 worth of cards to sell, move in on a case of UMA, and get back out and reacquire the cards with some money left over. Um, could be too much effort. Um, but the point I was making was that I think a lot of people are underestimating the set because of what happened with Iconic Masters and with M25, which were both released basically within the last year. 
Um, people felt like those sets were disappointing and there was a lot of it in the supply chain that got clogged up. So the prices really dropped out. So anybody who actually paid MSRP or even over 200 on those boxes ended up regretting it when they ended up being available for like 120 to 140, 140, um, especially when there was eBay coupons on. Um, and so I've seen a lot of like different kinds of skepticism, uh, this week that I think it's, uh, important to address. And we'll get to that towards the end. Um, in the fourth segment. But for now, let's just say that if you can get in on boxes of UMA around $250 and there, those opportunities continue to pop up on eBay, I just referred people to one a few hours ago. Um, I suspect that holding this for six months could end up with you outing the case at closer to 14 There was some of these posted. Um, God, what was the most recent listing that I saw for these? I think it was 260 somebody linked. Uh, and I was pondering pulling the trigger and I wanted to ask you what you thought. Well, there's a, like, I mean, my, the case I bought the other day from, uh, a site I had never been to before game nerds with a Z.com briefly had them posted for two twenty five or a thousand dollars a case. Yeah. And I snap bought that case. Um, and then realized it wasn't a thousand cause I can't do math. Two twenty five by four is 900, uh, which is even better, obviously. Um, so 900 bucks a case, I feel very confident about because at minimum, I expect to be able to flip it for like 1200 if I wanted to sell it locally in Toronto, um, or the equivalent of 1200 us. Um, but the box toppers are really the difference here. Um, one of the things that people have been complaining about is how the MSRP went up, but the long and the short of it is that I think the box topper more than justifies that I expect, um, that the average price on those is going to be attractive enough that it's basically like you're paying the same price that master sets have always been, but the master sets themselves are significantly better. Um, so I don't think that the UMA boxes are the best possible spec dealing in sealed product. It has a bunch of disadvantages versus just buying and selling single cards. Um, not the least issue, which is that the shipping is more expensive in both directions potentially. Um, and the hold could be longer than other things you could do, like targeting the singles that aren't going to be in Ultimate Masters that are set to go up, which we'll talk about probably next week. Um, but, you know, for now, I think that if you're, especially if you're just kind of like dabbling your toes in the water or you're a, a modern player building a collection um, um, or you're looking for, you know, you've got some money to spare and you're looking for a good gift for a modern player in the family, um, all of those are going to be pretty solid reasons to go ahead. And I was wondering about that. Um, you know, the box topper, I agree, is a crucial component of this. And part of this will depend on you see, I don't want <laughs> I, I don't want to dig too deep in here because like this is our topic for the end of the show. So I'm going to let what you said stand. I, I don't think you're wrong. I think if you can get it 250, that sounds great. Uh, let's revisit this a little bit in segment four um, so we don't cannibalize our own yep. show. So my first card of the week is <clears throat> Seedborn Muse. I'm looking at the foils out of Battleborn, currently about $17, uh, under 20 Supply is pretty healthy on this at the moment. I think there were something like 50 vendors for this card. Uh, that's fine. There are every other foil copy of Seedborn Muse, of which there is ninth edition. Uh, what is it? There's an Urza's copy. 
of some sort. No. Legions. That's what it was. I knew it was Legions. Old Legions, ninth edition, and there was one other one. But they're all at minimum forty to forty-five dollars, and some of them are like sixty, eighty dollars. So seventeen for a foil battle bond copy is absolutely fine. Um, I, you know, this is in like fifteen thousand EDH decks. It's a hugely popular green card. It's notorious for a reason. Uh, I don't think really. Uh, the question is, will the uh, rules committee ban it? But that seems highly unlikely. Uh, so. I'm a big fan here. I think that you can grab these, hang out for a little while. Uh, I mean, it's not going to be overnight. Supply's a little too deep for that. But, you know, within a year, these should be a good, you know, I would expect a double up at least up to about $35 or so, um, simply because a lot of people play Seaborn Muse. And if you want a foil, you can pay $50 for a 10th edition one, or you can pay $17 for a Battle Bond copy. And at that point, you just get the Battle Bond copy. Yeah, I'm just taking a look at the foil supply from Battle Bond here. Yeah, I mean it's 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 richer for sure. No, Re- relatively deep, but but the latter is steep. There aren't that many seventeen dollar copies. No, and they seem very likely to end up at twenty five before it ever sees a reprint. And if it doesn't stop at twenty five, then it goes easy can easily go back to the 30, 35, 40. I mean, it's such a good card. Mm-hmm. In idiot. Yep. All right. Um, so my only other pick this week is Smuggler's Copter Foils. Um, bit of an outsider pick. Um, predicated on a combination of modest EDH play and very modest modern play. Um, occasionally shows up in Merfolk decks. It has showed up in Eldrazi decks in modern. Um, I've seen some other kind of like rando decks running it in modern tournaments lately. Um Smuggler's Copter obviously was almost, well, basically was too good for standard. Um, uh, got banned, right? Mm-hmm. So has an outsider chance of posting up in modern. Um, not great that like Fatal Push and Path to Exile and Assassin's Trophy all answer it so easily. Um, Lightning Bolt as well. Like Basically any kill anybody's going to be running can go one for one with it, but it sets up a significant source of card advantage if that's not true, and because it flies, decks like the Eldrazi deck that are often stuck on the ground um, can leverage this card to you know get past defenses and get deeper in their deck. Um, so I don't think it's a high priority spec, but I like how few copies of the foils are sitting around given how recently it was in print. Um, I don't think it's going to be on Wizards Radar to reprint it anytime soon. Um, certainly, it's not going to show up in Standard ever again. So, foils at 7 to go to 15, say on like a one-year, maybe one-and-a-half-year horizon, at the you know, as the worst-case scenario, seems like a pretty solid play to me. I wouldn't want to be very deep on this, but a play set, maybe two. Yeah, this is, uh, this is a pretty solid. I agree that we're not going to see it uh, anytime soon. And more importantly, if we do, I don't think you see it uh, in a foil set. I think you see it in like one of those sort of promo, not promo, but like a, basically a pre-con, like, you know, elves versus goblins type product where you don't really get foils. Uh, that's where I would expect to see this again. Um, which will, of course, you don't have to deal with foils in that case. Uh, and it could end up becoming quite popular. Um, we have seen them return to the, like, whenever this creature becomes tapped, something happens mechanic. Uh, in fact, they just put out Amara. The new Amara does that. Um, 
So if we get a creature who's very good with that type of rules text on them, uh, the value of this could go up dramatically. Um, so that type of card could unlock the utility of this uh, in a way that we haven't yet seen. So, uh, you know, the card has already established a precedence for being pretty powerful. Add in the fact that we could get something down the road that makes it uh, quite good. There's very low reprint. I think this is pretty solid. And what's good is you can probably find these for trade uh, in your local store. You know, keep an eye out for these in, in binders. There are some cards that I like to kind of target and trade more than I necessarily want to go to TCG Player and buy. And this is that type of card because we're not expecting to move right away. Uh, but it could be a good gainer long term. So this is a good thing to kind of like, well, I picked up this card and draft, you know, this new hot new standard card. I don't know what to do with it. Uh, you know, at the very what do I trade it away for? And this is a good type of target. Yep. Uh, what's your next pick? So my next card this week, uh, kind of boring. We've talked about it before, but it still looks pretty good. The growing rights of Itlamok buy a box promo uh, is still. Uh, just about $20, hasn't really climbed above that yet too much. Um, I think the supply on TCG under 20 is only a couple copies before it gets above that, but you can definitely, I'm sure, find them cheaper if you really look, or more under 20, I should say, if you uh, if you dig around for them. Uh, it's in a good chunk of EDH decks, things like 4,500, 5,000. Uh, it will continue to be popular. It will continue to be played. We're not going to see them go anywhere. So I know that this is not new territory but i just want to remind you guys it's still out there it still looks decent uh, the other buy box promos have done really well uh search for his content i didn't look it up but i'm sure that's noxiously expensive at this point um and we're not going to see him again anytime soon and uh, i really like this one's long-term prospects in edh uh this is the foils right the buy box promo yeah oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah so i was yeah <laughs> I'm already super deep on these. I haven't bought any recently. I was buying like a year ago when nobody thought this card was any good. Um, and Jason Alt was betting me it wasn't going to be a force in EDH. But uh, and it's not like it's any kind of like super big deal there. But I think that it's gotten into the single digit thousands. Uh, yeah, 4,600 decks reported on EDH rec. So um, clearly a card that people are going to be using. And we haven't really got a like super great tokeny commander for it other than Slimefoot in the last year so if we get another tokens style uh commander that people are excited about um and that starts to get to get built a lot i think you're going to see more of this card in, in commander decks yeah yeah i think it's a uh, pretty well positioned um i have one last card i want to touch on i wanted to give you guys a standard pick uh and so did my wife who just walked into the room and is making noise with everything Hello. That she owns. but i really wanted to give you guys a standard pick this week uh but i i can't i can't find something that i really like um i know the pro tours this weekend people are gonna be like what do we do what do we do uh what do we buy ahead of the pro tour and i just don't know uh, and this is going to kind of bleed into our metagame we can review and we talk about the standard mocks but Standards kind of up in the air right now. I think we have a pretty good idea of what the the several of the top decks are, but at the same time, it doesn't feel excuse me settled. There's been a lot of turnover every week. The format's been all over the place, so we I really do think we're in a position to see something break out. Essentially, if somebody found a combo or a strategy or something that uh, we we're, we haven't seen yet. You could really see something come to the forefront. I obviously don't know what that is because I'm not on a pro team. What do I think looks interesting and possibly could do really well that we've gotten whiffs of so far as being good? 
uh, I'm going to, I would say Tristani Discordant. You can pick up copies right now for three bucks. It's a new mythic. We have seen it pop up in some of the Selesnya token lists. Um, they play it in the sideboard. Uh, or there's three in the main. So for instance, there was one in the standard box, uh, 12th place. The guy played three main. Um, so it is seeing some play. There is some utility to the card. Uh, so this is not necessarily a pick, mind you. I'm not telling you to go buy these at $3. I think that given what I know of standard at the moment, this would be the car. If I had to pick a card that I like the most, this would probably be it. Um, but I don't know for sure. The the standard Pro Tour, I think, is one of the more uh, open that we've seen in a while. Just looking over the cards from Guilds of Ravnica that have made the biggest impact this early on for EDH rec reporting. I don't see this one showing up there, and that's part of what I would want to be at back, my backup plan that might get me to take a look at the $7, $8 foils that are available for this card. If you could convince me that this was going to be uh, you know, similar to growing rights, like it was going to be in four or 5,000 EDH decks within a couple of years, then it would definitely be worth looking at the foils a little more closely. But currently there's only 92 decks reported, which doesn't seem super exciting. Um, and I just don't like these. It's got to get there in standard, but it's not there yet. And the inventory is really deep on the non foils. Uh, yeah, again, it, 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 I, this could easily be a three to ten, but it's just, I think we can both agree this this carries some risk. Oh, yeah. And again, I want to reiterate, not telling people to go out and buy it. I just I wanted to be able to say, well, look, I know people want to know about standard. Uh, and like, OK, gun to my head. What card do I think is the most curious? It's probably Tristani. But you still absolutely should not spend any money on this card until you seem until you feel like you have a good reason to. And we do not have that yet. But if you see if you see the opening tables, uh, what is it tomorrow? This all starts, and you see Channel Fireballs got four Tristanis in their deck. Uh, yeah, then you're <laughs> that's a good sign. <laughs> I mean, interestingly, there's there's a lot of cards being played in the Boros and Jeskai decks that have already spiked hard enough that it's tough for them to have much of anywhere to go. Yeah. Things like Rekindle, Rekindling Phoenix. Um, Lyra Dawnbringer, History of Benalia, Teferi, etc. They have some room for growth, but percentage-wise, it could be very tricky. Like even if somebody like made a move on one of these cards this weekend because it seemed like the top eight was going to be packed with them, a lot of those like Pro Tour weekend specs tend to fall back as quickly as they um, get drained and the inventory fills back up in the market and you end up getting squeezed and getting out with like a measly 10 or 12%. And that's not always the case, but it's always like going into a big tournament with a lot of coverage. You really want to be snapping off the, like mopping up copies of something that's recently discovered. Mm -hmm. And so I think with pro tour weekend like this, where the, the meta, you know, this isn't pro tours aren't the first week of release anymore. So the surprises are significantly more dampened in standard and it's it's going to surprise me quite a bit if we see a breakout card like tristani you know fill up the top eight like 16 copies in the top eight or something when last week there was none um and i think that outside of those scenarios it's going to be tough to make money especially when you've got these other things going on like mythic edition and uma that are probably going to be better bets or you know with uma things around uma that we're going to get to in a second Right. And so I, I agree with you that for, in some capacity. Uh, I think this standard Pro Tour is the most vibrant 
possibly the best one we've had um, probably since they moved it. Um, basically, uh, I think that this format doesn't feel as settled uh, as it has in past at this point in the past with other uh, other formats. So that could that could be part of it. It does give you some opportunity, maybe, uh, but that's still a maybe. We don't know for sure because we don't know if something's going to break out. Uh, and the other thing is, it, uh, absolutely, we already had a bunch of cards jump, right? You had your Teferi. You had, uh, like you said, the Rekindling Phoenix and all that who started out really low and made that big jump. So there's a lot less meat on the bone there than there would have been otherwise, uh, which makes it tough for some of these other cards. So I, I guess I, I'm hopeful that this pro tour gives us a little bit more excitement than we've had in the past, basically, because uh, nobody wants boring pro tours. Fair. All right, so let's talk about our metagame week in review. Biggest tournament last weekend was Grand Prix Atlanta, which was 1,300-plus players. <laughs> um, a modern tournament. Atlantia. It sounds like you wanted to say Ixalan. Ixalan no, and Atlanta. I, I, I was, was almost doing like a weatherman like San Diego. San Diego. Um, it sounded like the, you ever see the Futurama episode where they travel to the lost city of Atlanta? Yeah, character in it who says it, and I think you sounded like that. Mm-hmm. I like it. Frankly, I think we should pronounce it that way. I think that's better than Atlanta. Atlanta. It's more classy. Add some class to it. Atlanta. All right. So there. Anyway, there, there was thirteen hundred people at this we're, modern. We're an Atlanta podcast now. That's all we um, talk about. And and we ended up uh, with a top eight that was not super interactive. Band Spirits won it, uh, which is a you know pretty solid. Um, uh, tribal aggro deck with a couple of interactive elements, uh, mostly in the form of things like selfless spirit activations, reflector mage, and spell queller. Occasionally, a rattle chains, um, and leans heavily in the late game on things like collective company to fill back up the board. Um, but then we had two copies of KCI, KCI finishing second and seventh. Um, uh, Hardened scales, affinity, infect, dredge, hollow one, and Urzatron. Um, I had offers on Japanese foil hardened scales that I turned down this week and also similarly on hollow one copies. Um, neither feel like I need to be in any rush to sell them. These decks look like they're going to be around for a while. Um, every time Casey is on camera, people can't help themselves but talk about how it should be banned. <laughs> and it does show up enough that it is certainly a, a persistent presence. Um, it's not particularly fun to play against or watch. Um, it's a very difficult deck to play, um, but the format overall, even though it is filling up with n- non-interactive decks, <laughs> is still a vibrant and healthy format where new things are discovered sem- semi-regularly. So I'm very curious to see how this plays out in the next couple of years, whether Wizards tries to shove another format in people's faces um, to shift Modern into the legacy position and put something else that involves less sets in between Standard and Modern. Uh, it's going to be tough when people are this invested in what looks like a pretty good format. Yeah. And I know there's a lot of complaints that modern isn't, uh, interactive enough, which I don't think is entirely unfound that it's definitely got less play to it than it used to. And, you know, John used to be a, a major component of the format for quite a while and even had a bit of a resurgence there, but it seems to have died back down again. Uh, cause why play cards like that when you can just play all these other decks that just, don't care about anything whatsoever. Um, 
so I understand the the concern, I guess. Uh, but I don't think Wizards needs to be in a position to be pulling the trigger on anything right away. Um, you know, they might do it if there's an event in the near future that they kind of want to make things a little more interesting for. Uh, but other than that, I think it's fine. You've got enough churn here going on that keeps it looking interesting. Yeah, I mean, 9th to 16th was another copy of Ant Spirits, Burn, Humans, Blue Black Control. That was probably the most interesting deck on the list. Uh, a Storm deck and then a Valakut deck. Um, the Blue Black Control was running, <clears throat> was basically a fairies deck. Um, so Blue Black Control is not really what most people would call it. And the, the deal here with Yuta Takahashi was that he had um, one, two other Grand Prix with fairies, I think. I think Block Constructed and Standard. <laughs> and this was his attempt to win a modern tournament with a fairies deck at a time where most people consider fairies to be dead in the water. Um, and it was a pretty classical looking fairies deck for the most part although it ran three jace the mind sculptor and three liliana of the veil um which i don't recall seeing in fairies list back in the day it also ran two heroes downfall <laughs> you don't recall seeing them in fairies because those cards didn't exist during fairies uh, are you talking standard fairies or modern fairies like earlier versions of modern fairies uh, i don't think well jace wasn't legal at the time Liliana might have popped up. I don't know. Was Fairies more of an extended deck than a modern deck? Yeah. Yeah, because we started with Bitter Blossom Band. Right. Um, so, And that was always considered to be the key piece of fairy. So it was, people had tried it multiple times. Uh, PV was probably the biggest name that took a couple passes at it. Uh, Sam Black tried to, but it, it never mattered in modern. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so anyway, interesting there that because we're getting a we know we're getting a bitter blossom reprint in Ultimate Masters with great new art, and um, but we just got it uh, with the original art that people generally preferred up until now um, in M twenty five, right? M twenty five or Iconic Masters, or was it? What am I? Let me double check. I don't know. Not like we're we supposed to know these things. Uh, <clears throat> MM2015 was the last printing of this card. Oh, it's been a while then. I had that wrong. Yeah. It wasn't last year at all. Um, wow, 2015. 2015. Time's flying. Uh, all right. So we haven't seen it for a few years. Um, I somehow don't sense a fairy's wave <laughs> about to overtake modern. This guy is a fairy's expert. Um, so call this a one-off till we see any further evidence. Pardon me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I agree. I don't think that this um, portends anything with re- in relation to that deck. Every now and then you get somebody who shows up and plays something uh, and does really well with a strategy and everyone's like, oh, is this the return of Archetype X? And it's like, no, this player is just phenomenally good with that deck in a way nobody else is. Uh, and that's pretty much all that's going on here. And the format definitely rewards understanding the meta and understanding your deck's place in it um as much as it rewards anything right i think deck selection really matters much less for the average player than knowing your deck yeah all right so there was also a standard mocks on magic online that had only 340 players but does give us a peek at what might be going on at the pro tour this weekend a lot of white weenie decks running healer's hawk of all things one one flying lifelink yeah man one mana so that's what it's Uh, all about these days 
this is this is the uh, the white weenie special right here, and it was uh, three copies in the top eight. There was three copies of the blue red spells deck, a copy of Jeskai Control running four Teferi Hero of Dominaria, and the Boros Aggro deck that has the most in, probably the biggest contingent of mythic cards in uh, Aurelia, Lyra, History of Benalia, and Rekindling Phoenix. The Healer's Hawk art looks like it's carrying C4. It looks like it has C4 <laughs> strapped to its chest. That's rude of it. I know that it's vi- they're like vials of something, but it looks like it's a suicide bomber. Um, yeah, but what's interesting here is that this top 16 doesn't really look like the other top 16s we've seen. I mean, at first you saw a ton of Golgari. There was a bunch of Jeskai Control. Uh... So I don't know. I feel like it's bouncing around all over the place. The pillars seem to be um, history of Benalia, low to the ground, white aggro decks, especially now that they're all playing uh, Toka, Tokatli Honor Guard. Tokatli, yeah, Tokatli Honor Guard because it um, counters the Golgari decks pretty well. You have the Jeskai Control decks. You have the Spell decks with Rekindling Phoenix. And that seems to be the core of it. But I got to tell you, it does seem like there's room for something to really crack here uh this almost feels uh, i don't know it, it feels like there's room for something clever to happen as per usual you want to be cross-referencing coverage and the inventory levels on tcg player have stuff that you think might have a chance of, of popping that looks like it might already have a steep ladder say it's a ten dollar card but you see not too deep down the list it starts to become a 15 or 20 dollar card and throw that stuff in your cart so that if you turn the corner and decide that it's going to pop um you can go ahead and execute quickly because when when it turns the corner a lot of people will have the same idea at the same moment and that's part of the problem yeah i and really i think that's the best financial advice we can give for uh, a standard pro tour is buy from reputable dealers because uh, paying 75 cents more for your pay, paying six dollars instead of 525 from star city and actually getting the cards is a lot better than paying 450 for the card from some rando tcg player store that's not going to ship the, ship you the card at all um so just keep that in mind when it these are the times where you should be okay paying a touch more because it guarantees you actually get the card in the mail sure all right so moving on to our final topic of the week uh, a couple things we wanted to go over one of them uh from the top probably the easiest topic i wanted to c- touch on the fact that um super high-end cards um rarely show up in our price checking um because the data that we can glean from our various sources on that on that is too scant to be statistically significant um and you'll see this on most price indexing sites for magic cards um they usually take a pass on or do a pretty poor job of say estimating the current price of a beta mox emerald um, in near mint condition. And the reason for that is that many of the major online vendors are most of the time sold out of that stuff. Um, once you get past a few thousand dollars on a card, a lot of it ends up being negotiable and you end up having to contact and negotiate by email or by phone. Um, a lot of it exchanges hands around between in networks of relatively uh, closely knit online communities. The Facebook high end group would be one of them. 
um, where there are a lot of action goes on that is not uh, where the data is not being recorded. Um, and the prices tend to be better than, say, randomly finding a card uh, on an eBay auction. And I think it's important for us to acknowledge that, that we are not covering that well um, because the data is not easily um, gleaned. And one of the things I was thinking that we should do in the near future is have somebody on from the high-end group that is in the thick of it that's been doing a lot of buying and selling um, and try to get some, you know, take the temperature of what's been happening with the higher end reserve list cards this year, because there's definitely been, you know, a lot of movement upward over the last couple of years. And there's also been some stuff that has fallen back, um, especially in the lower end of reserve lists. Like a lot of duels were spiking hard um, earlier this year and have now retraced quite a bit. Um, so that all make sense to you? Oh yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. And this is, yeah, every now and then you, uh, the last time you had a bunch of store credit, you're like, Oh, what should I buy from, the store I have, you know, three or four grand. Which one do you like? Do you like this MP Beta Bayou or this HP Beta Max Opal? And I'm like, are you kidding me? How could I like? How could I possibly <laughs> know? It wasn't a. It wasn't a Beta. It, it wasn't a Beta Max Opal, obviously. Uh, <laughs> Since that would be a modern pearl, card. Pearl. That's what it, what it was. Sure. Yeah, it was yeah. a pearl. I think. I'm just like I, I. I don't know because there's no source of data for me to go to to glean this information. Um, this is definitely the like gray market of magic, and it's not that it's illegal. It's just that it doesn't take place in established in yeah channels where people have access to that information easily. And even the Facebook high end group, I'm sure there's a lot of DMs going back and forth, uh, wheeling and dealing at GPs, uh, haggling over condition. So it's a much gray, you know, muddier, grayer uh, area. So, which is, which is, I guess, kind of interesting because it rewards the people who get really into the thick of it. And I mean, that's, that's not James and I, right? Like we do every, almost all of it from our apartments. Um, the people who I'm talking about who really get to capitalize in this are like the, the vendors and GP grinders who are there every week. And, and it's easier to keep track of all of this. Um, and they have ins and outs on it too, right? Because even if you manage, if you figure out what a good price for a card should be and you manage to buy the card for that price, now you have to sell it. And again, for James and I, it's like, uh, well, I guess I post it on eBay and hope somebody buys it. Maybe I, you know, if I have a card that's worth four grand, I might do a little bit of elbow work and try and get somebody do some digging to find a buyer. But if you're the guy, again, at a GP grinder who's there every weekend, now you can be like, hey, I've got this card. Uh, if any of anyone's regulars are looking for one. So you kind of not only is that the network where you find out about them, where you learn about them and where you can find them, it's also the network where you can sell them. Uh, so definitely pretty opaque to the average magic player. And, uh, what, and it's an issue I'm experiencing right now. I have $1,000 in Channel Fireball credit and I'm like, Maybe I should go buy uh, some interesting cards here. And I'm like, I don't even know where to start. Yeah, I mean, it's not like it's, you know, the high end market is not foreign to me. I own about 20,000 worth of reserve list stuff now. I've been acquiring beta duels and other stuff, especially through buy listing um, over the last couple of years. But I'm not doing your knowledge, James. Well, but I think it, well, I think you're I think it's accurate to do so anyway, because I my, my next point was that. okay, so I did that. And what, at the time, I kind of took the temperature of the market, but it's not something I'm monitoring on a day-to-day basis the way that like Brian Nocenti is, who was involved in buying out a big booth at Eternal Weekend last week. Um, you know, like a million point five worth of reserve list stuff changed hands 
um, just at that one booth alone. And those are the people, the people involved in those kind of transactions that have the best sense of what they can unload cards for, um, you know, how much wiggle room there is. And there's been a lot of, um, a lot of the better reserveless stuff has been getting sent off to get graded, which then puts it in a whole nother price class, right? So a lot of what would normally have been, you know, five years ago, it, was, it wasn't that hard to find a near mint, say, Mock Sapphire or something. But now if the Mock Sapphire is any good, if it's going to score like 8.5 plus, it's probably been graded. So to find, you know, any piece of power worth more than, you know, a thousand bucks as anything but graded is becoming increasingly rare as well. So I think the, the bottom line is that it's important to pl- point out your blind spots and to recognize where your information is not going to be um, you know, we're not doling out uh, updates on high-end magic card sales every week. Part of that's because not everybody in our audience cares. Um, but I think we'll probably make it a goal in the next, you know, month or so to get somebody in from the high-end group to, you know, talk about what's going on again. Maybe it'll be Brian, maybe somebody else. Yeah, that would be interesting. That type of stuff is always cool to talk about, even if it's, uh, you know, even if we're disconnected and I don't really know what to do with that information. It's still curious to kind of hear about, uh, what's happening in that space from somebody who's familiar with it. It's going to be tricky to find somebody who can speak to it at a level that we are able to appreciate it. I think uh, sometimes I feel like some of those conversations with people that are that deep in a niche, that niche of a market are like, <clears throat> they're talking about like all these micro movements from the last two, three weeks. And I'm like, uh, I'm really curious about like macro over the last nine months or a year. Cause I, I can't appreciate the texture from the last two weeks, but um, yeah, so I think that's a very fair point that we ultimately it's much harder for us to know this type of stuff and report it, uh, than it would be for other markets. Yeah. Um, all right. So the other topic this week is a follow on to our discussion last week about the, uh, announcements surrounding ultimate masters. Um, last week we knew that box topper cards from Ultimate Masters were being sent out or promo cards that were almost certainly going to be included in the set. We didn't know exactly what it was going to be, but um, we or we didn't know exactly what was going to be in the set. Um, but as of Monday, uh, we got a lot more information. So we now know that there are 40 um, box toppers, what I am calling, Wizards is not officially calling masterpieces, but I consider them to be masterpieces. I think they're in the same class of, of cards. Um, super limited, super high-end versions of popular Magic cards. Um, There are 40. Almost all of those 40 are impressive and important cards with high demand profiles, um, other than things like Balefire Dragon. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I forgot that's Um, in there, too. But there's stuff like Liliana of the Veil, Tarmogoyf, Snapcaster Mage, uh, Ancient Tomb, um, you know, all sorts of goodies. And we also know that all of those box toppers are also... Uh, mythics rares or uncommons in the set and because of that i was able to put together um, pretty detailed lists on all of the mythics because we know all of them um and about like two-fifths or something of the rares but given that wizards tends to lead with the good stuff i would imagine that most of the good rares are already revealed with maybe five more money cards on the rare side uh, still to be doled out. Um, and so I started running some numbers comparing what the average value currently in market is of the 
Ultimate Masters Mythics and Rares versus, say, Modern Masters 2017 um, Mythics and Rares or M25 Mythics and Rares from last spring. Um, and what I came up with was pretty interesting. Because we know all tw- 20 of the Mythics, and that's actually notable in and of itself, there are 20 Mythics and not 15, which is what we've come to expect from Master Sets. Um, and that's important because the more mythics you have, the less chance of getting any one mythic in a box, which means that for the total print run, there's going to be less of each of these mythics than there has been in the past, which is kind of a tricky little thing they're doing, right? Like if you have stuff that's set with more good cards, but you lower the chances of pulling any given one of them, you're actually putting less copies into the market than you would have otherwise when there was 15 by a full third. Um, and as a result, I would expect that that will temper some of the downward pressure on the mythic prices, at least. Um, that can really screw so with when people's I, math too, because we get, we sort of build this, uh, intuition for what these will mean for the prices. <clears throat> and then if the math on those mythics changes, suddenly the prices don't seem to be dropping quite the way we thought they would, or, or, you know, that type of thing, or they're a little harder to find than you'd expect them to be. Um, and, and that can have a, a, an impact for sure on uh, kind of your sense of the set, essentially. Yeah. And so when I looked like early on at, for instance, uh, Modern Masters 2017, um, the average price of the rares, uh, sorry, I'll start with the mythics, the average price of the mythics, and that was the set that had Tarmogoyf, Liliana the Veil, Cavern of Souls, Snapcaster Mage, and then Linvala and Crater Hoof, and then it fell off pretty hard into Voice of Resurgence, Crystal Brand, Temporal Mastery, and a bunch of other stuff that was sub $10. The average of the Mythics before um, the set had even come out was about $31. By comparison, the average of the 20 that are included in, in Ultimate Masters is $45. $44.80 was my total. Um, and you have 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, Eight cards over 50 bucks currently in the market. So Dark Depths, Caracas, Temporal Manipulation, Snapcaster Mage, Cavern of Souls, Tarmogoyf, Karn Liberated, and Liliana of the Veil are all between $50 and $100. Um, and then $30 to $50 cards include Emmercool, the Aeons Torn, Kozilek, the Butcher of Truth, Bitter Blossom, Vengevine, Mana Vault, and uh, just slightly below that. In the twenty to thirty dollar range, you have Leovold, Emissary of Trust, Ulamog, the Infinite Gear, uh, or Gyre, and uh, Mickeyus, the Unhallowed. So <laughs> that's a lot of value <laughs> to stuff into a set. Um, and over on the rares for Modern Masters twenty seventeen, for instance, which I think uh, is more relevant to compare than say something like Iconic Masters or. Uh, even M25, because it was the last good master set, like the one that people were generally satisfied with um, and that was stuffed with a lot of value. The rares from MM17 included all of the um, Zendikar Fetchlands, so Scalding Tarn, Misty Reinforced, etc. And then um, most of the other rare value was in Damnation, Blood Moon, Goblin Guide, and like Death Shadow. Um, by comparison, just the rares we know about so far um, Include Engineered Explosives, Noble Hierarch, Celestial Colonnade, Gaddock Teague, all over $50. And then from 20 to 50 we have Gorio's Vengeance, Through the Breach, Ancient Tomb, Demonic Tutor, Fulminator Mage, Reanimate, and Maelstrom Pulse, and Urborg, and Life from the Loam, and Entomb. That's really deep on the $20 rares. That's a... And 
really good set of cards. But Galactic is fifty dollars now. Yep, because it hasn't been printed in forever. What the hell? Um, so when you're considering all of that, understand that we don't know the full set set yet. They still have to demonstrate, you know, the EV contributions of the commons and uncommons, of which we only know two of the uncommons: uh, Kitchen Finks and I forget what the other one is, but it doesn't really matter. Yeah, Eternal Witness. Um, uh, what's important here is to understand that the setup for delivering a great set is here. They would have to, everything else that revealed later would have to be pretty bad. And that's very unlikely. And one of the reasons that's unlikely is that they still haven't handed out preview cards. So, and I've been talking to some of the personalities that get preview cards and they won't tell me exactly what they've got, but they've said, no one is going to be disappointed in this card. There is more value coming. And I got that from three or four different people. So, in a situation like that, if only those people are correct and and they have no reason to say to tell me anything that's not going to end up being true in a week, um, assume that the average price of the mythics and rares might be thirty to forty percent higher than it was in Modern Masters twenty seventeen, which was already a great set. All the boxes I bought of MM seventeen made me money. It didn't take that long. It was like within six months to twelve months, most of the important cards had rebounded hard. Like. I remember getting like Scalding Tarns and Verdant Catacombs for about 40% less than I ended up selling them for about a year later. And that's not the absolute best spec or spec period, but for a lot of our listeners, it might be in the sweet spot of relatively easy to parse um, and access and have the upside of, despite the potential for some variance and, and opening boxes, there's a lot of ways for your box to go right even if you're just buying it for funsies um, and it's not going to be part of your finance activities. It's just going to be something you buy for yourself. If you're looking at this as, is this going to be worth it to purchase? I think it's a no brainer. A lot of people were complaining about that $340 MSRP as though that was a real number. But the reality is that I already bought my case this week for $900 US, 225 a box. Um, and there were sellers online selling in the 250 to 260 range over the last couple of days as well. Thousands of boxes got sold by Sports and More at 265, I believe. Yeah, and which is um, still they, uh, still available. I don't know if it's Sports and More specifically, but I believe that price point is still active. Yeah, they they sold like 3,300 units or something. Um, I made a cal- quick calculation that they had made like 200,000 or 250,000 in profit in 24 hours on on this set. Um, that is pretty amazing. And keep in mind that a lot of people were criticizing them as being like, oh, they can't be making any money because there's no margin. Well, on standard boxes, that might be true. That's almost certainly a pure value play where they're only making like five bucks a box or something in a lot of cases. But on this set, based on distributor pricing being in the 185 to 195 range for the most part, some as high, just under 200 um, or a little over 200, depending on who your distributor is, what your relationship with them is, and um you know how many boxes you're ordering um you know selling at 225 the guys who did that for me didn't make much money on those um but selling at 250 is significantly better you know if sports and more is making 50 or 60 bucks a box gross profit um you know minus expenses and overhead but they sold like 3300 or when all is said and done maybe they're going to move 5000 units here um that's a very nice piece of their year i'm sure and keep in mind that if you're getting your box at 250, you're really probably getting your box at 150. Because I think that 
the box topper is probably going to average a hundred bucks. Well, this is where the conversation starts. I think is how much is that actually worth? I saw Seth commenting that uh, he he made a reference to the box topper being worth about fifty five dollars, which at the time sounded kind of low to me because there are duds like Lava Claw Reaches and and Balefire Dragon, but that seems like a pretty short list, right? Of cards that you're not interested in getting, uh, and there are a lot of strong pulls in this. And the high seems like it could be very high. Uh, so fifty five dollars seems kind of low for the average value of the box topper. Um, I, I don't know where he's getting that number because the <laughs> Ultimate Masters Mythic non-foil market average is forty four eighty. Are you telling me that the box toppers are only going to be eleven dollars more for the uh, so mythics? I, and for the rares, they're only going to be twenty dollars. I mean, more? maybe I misquoted him. Like that is entirely that is entirely possible, right? So I'm not going to say that that's. He, he might have been. He might have been suggesting that the EV contribution was fifty five dollars. Uh, but but even that doesn't make sense to me because the EV is an automatic is is the straight average of the, of the box toppers, right? Um, and and even if that was true heading into peak supply that would just be a buy signal because when i say that the average is 100 i'm thinking six months out so if they get that low fine but a lot of this depends on what is the total print run because one of the things people were saying to me all week <clears throat> was you're you're crazy these are so there's so much more of these than there were like kaladesh inventions because those were only one every four boxes and this is one every box and it's like Okay, but you haven't finished your math. Your your math breakfast has just started and you just had a bite of toast. The You have to look at the fact that a st fall standard set is printed to a much higher level than a supplemental set announced last minute that where the total allocation is going to be relatively low. When I asked vendors this week, what percentage of your, of your year, generally speaking over the last few years, has... Um, the fall set bin versus, say, a master set or master sets in the case of like last year. And they said it was like roughly, I got a bunch of different answers, but it was roughly something like 30% for the fall set and 15% or less for the master sets. Okay. And keep in mind that the price point plays into that too. The master sets are uh, MSRP versus mark street cost is at least double in most cases um, versus a standard box. So you have to take that into consideration as well. And what that what that says is that print runs for the fall set versus this Ultimate Master set is probably something on the order of like six to eight times, if not more. And you can reality check some of that without knowing the exact print run by taking the total amount of Magic re brand revenue for the year, which is reported. We had The last known number I had from 2014, it was published in Bloomberg. Was, sorry, 2015 published in Bloomberg was twenty was $329 million US for the brand. Which, um, there is some debate as to whether that included Magic Online money so or not. That seems low, um, but neither here nor there. Well, if, let's say that it's $500 million. If there are 40,000 boxes of Ultimate Masters, then... The profit to wizard basically forty thousand sorry uh four hundred thousand boxes of ultimate masters 
then 400,000 boxes times wizard's cost to vendors is probably something like one six, sorry, to distributors is probably like 160. And then they're selling it on to vendors in the 185 to 195 range. So let's say it's 160 times 400,000. That's a $64 million event. So if you believe that the uh, total brand revenues for print magic are somewhere between 350 and say 450 million, which seems it, it can't be more than that. Um, the given how much time has passed and that we know in investor reports, revenues have only been growing in single digit percentages, um, modest, but steady growth. Um, then, you know, a $64 million event would be more than 10% of the year. And that's in a year with another master set last, last spring, all of the standard sets, the summer set, commander, battle bond, um, mythic edition it would be very difficult to convince me that Ultimate Masters was going to be like 20% of the year or something. Especially given that one of the other big pieces of information that I've been pooling throughout the week was talking to a bunch of vendors. And this is like executives at major vendors that you would like, you would know the personalities and you would know the vendors. I've just been told I can't share the information directly without and attribute it. So let's just say that we talked to a lot of people that know what they're talking about. And I've been told that the, the the print run for this is much more limited, limited than some people think. It's not going to be anything like IMA or M25. It's going to be much closer to Modern Masters 2015. And it's also going to be single wave, single print run. So that means that there's going to be a lot of Ultimate Masters around at release for, say, three to six months would be my guess. And then it's going to start fading very quickly from the market. Well, that's where and that's where this also gets interesting is not only the box topper value and how much that's worth per box, but how what's the actual supply look like? Because that's another component that really people can can use as a, as a data point uh, because what scared us off from IMA and EMA was the volume appeared to be kind of high. Um, and we were kind of like, uh, I don't know if I want to be getting into something that seems like it's got a much larger print run than it did before. But now if it's going to be that low, uh, there's going to be way fewer box toppers and those box prices will rebound faster. That is tempting. That is tempting. Well, I mean, some of my math was like, I was talking to Oliver Ox, who's a vendor and, and a competitive player from Australia. Um, and I, we were talking about like how many, like, was my estimate of like 400,000 boxes reasonable? And I've talked, I've run this by several people and all of them have come back saying that their math came back relatively similar, even if they came at it from different angles. Um, but one of the things I said was like, say there are 50 LGSs per state. And as far as I can tell, there's less than 100 in California and California is the biggest state by population. So... I, I think I'm being generous. If there's 50 relevant hobby stores that are going to have access or online vendors that are going to have access per state, then you have about 2,500 vendors. Now, just for funsies, let's bump that up to 4,000 total in, say, North America, including Canada and Mexico, which doesn't really add that much. I mean, there's only 40 million people up here, and most of our stores are spread out across like seven cities. Um, they would still only account for like 20% of my print run because those 4,000 stores times say 20 boxes each would only cover off like 80,000 boxes. If they got 40 boxes each, it would cover off 160,000 boxes. That would still be a like minority amount of the 400,000 I'm predicting, the rest of which would I would assume would be spread out amongst the various LGSs worldwide. And keep in mind, 
that also includes Japan, where their inventory is largely just going to get sucked right into <laughs> the matrix, right? Like very little of the product's going to escape from Japan, first of all, because the vendors can't sell it directly overseas. And secondly, because unlike Battlebond, this is a product that Japanese players are absolutely going to want to have. It's everything they're interested in. It's, comp- it's a stock full of great competitive cards, and they're getting... Uh, a version that doesn't have Japanese box toppers, but does have access to things like Japanese foil lily on of the bill. Mm-hmm. Um, also notable is that they cut Chinese from the mix. So if we're only getting it in English and Japanese and there's no Chinese boxes, it doesn't really affect the singles too much because the Chinese singles wouldn't circulate in our, in our countries anyway in the West, but the box toppers probably would. And those are now absent from the equation. So if you believe that there's 400,000 boxes, or if it's even, you know, my margin of error is plus minus 20% or something, um, then there are there can't be more than about uh, 10,000 of each of the box toppers because there's 40 of those. And 10,000 is just about the number that I've settled on for prior discussions about how much Mythic Edition was printed and how much um, how many inventions and so forth were in the market. You know, we've had that discussion before where I said like six, eight, maybe 10,000. Like some people said 20, but I could never make that math work. Um, There's no, I I have zero doubt that any of the masterpieces are outside, are anything but inside the range of 5,000 to 20,000. And I feel pretty confident about the 10,000 number. I, uh, (laughs) I don't even know where to start with all this. I mean, ultimately, what you're driving here to here is that the supply is uh, looking like it's going to be quite narrow relative to what the general population may be expecting, especially with what we've come to know from the master sets in the past. Uh, Add in that there are 40 full box toppers, which is quite a few. you know, if you're talking about 10,000 of any given box topper, it's a, that's a pretty tight, pretty tight number. I mean, to put that in relation, you, so you're saying 10,000 of any one box topper, right? Which means 2,500 play sets of like box topper Lily on it. Okay, but hold on. The world. There are 46,000 decks on EDH rack with Demonic Tutor in them. Now, we know that EDH rec is way lower than... We use EDH rec as a, a relative comparison, right? Like, but, yeah, but it's not an absolute value. Obviously, there are more than 46,000 EDH decks out there. So if Demonic Tutor is that popular, you could not even put a masterpiece in one in every four decks. Um, and if we assume EDH rec is probably like more like what? a quarter to somewhere between a quarter and a 10th of the actual number of decks out there. Uh, I think it's probably, you know, a good jumping off point. Uh, that means you're looking at like a hundred thousand to 200,000 decks with demonic tutors in them. And there are 10,000 box toppers. Now, granted demonic tutors is an extraordinarily popular card. And most people that play with it aren't going to want one, but uh, that's not a lot of demonic tutors to go around. And that's if the only people anywhere that want one are the people who want them for EDH. Uh, and that's a one of you. And then, like you said, you move into something like Liliana or Raging Ravine or Celestial Colonnade or Entomb or Goryeo's Vengeance or 
whatever. Uh, those are all cards people want play sets of. So looking like there might be some strong opportunities here when that first supply wave hits. Yeah, this, there's some other factors to consider. People came at me with, yeah, but they sent all the, they sent thousands of these things thousands. out to people as apologies. Okay, so hold on. First of all, I ran surveys twice on that, and the latest one suggests that no more than 50% of the people involved in Mythic Edition have actually got the box toppers yet. But let's assume that that closes the gap, and the full 100% of people whose emails were on record associated with either a successful or a failed order for Mythic Edition do got the box topper. Well, how many Mythic Editions were there? We know that from CFB staff that told us information at GP Montreal that there was 200 um, boxes allocated per GP, at least at first. I don't know if that number shifted over time, but I do know that that was a reported number. So if it was 13 GPs from 200, that's 2,600 by itself. And then the question is, how many do you believe they sold in the one-day sale through Hasbro? Um you can also cross-reference that against how many of the box toppers actually showed up in social media and on eBay and so forth. If it was 100,000, there would be way more inventory out there right now. But there's not. It's relatively shallow. So I, I stand to believe that 10,000 is also a reasonable number for how many units of Mythic Edition they sold. And if there are 10,000 units of Mythic Edition, then that means that there's only two, plus 250 of any of the box toppers. Because there's 40 of them. So 10,000 free ones get sent out. Divided by 40, you get 250. If you believe I'm wrong and there's double that many, that 20,000 units of Mythic Edition were sold, there's still only plus 500. So that means we're moving from 10,000 copies from the 400,000 boxes printed to 10,500 copies. Well, so, that's not relevant. I mean, really, so, so, let's, so this has been great data analysis and synthesis. But what is our actionable our takeaway here it sounds like it is buy as much uma as humanly possible right because if we're expecting <laughs> if we're expecting the ev I, I, on I don't... act at the start to be uh you know 75 to 100 dollars when supply is maxed that seems like it go up quite a bit which means now you're looking if you're paying 260 for a box of uma right now you're getting let's say uh, let's, we won't say $100, we'll say $75, even $60. Now you're paying $200 for a box of EMA because of the box hopper value, UMA. But UMA is also looking very limited run and very good. So, like, what is the actual value going to be? Uh, I mean, it seems like you could take the box hopper out, sit on that, uh, and let that rack up value over time and move your box locally. That's why uh, for what three hundred dollars maybe two hundred and fifty yeah so that's a possibility so like when, when i ran final math for my article um, and you can find this on mggprice.com already released to everybody i didn't put it behind the pro trader screen um i said like you know average cost of the rares currently was 31 which was like a which was a 35 percent boost over mm17 if once they reveal all the garbage rares, that drops to $5, you'd still be underwriting $105 in, in box cost. If it gets down to $3, it's still $63. Plus $135 from the Mythics, plus $100 um, uh, from the Masterpieces. And then that's not even considering the commons and uncommons. 
which would easily justify the MSRP of 335. And if you get your box anywhere in the mid 200s, I think you're golden, especially if it's just to keep, if it's not a finance play. If it's a finance play, I think the tricky thing here is that if you compare it to something like Mythic Edition, the fact the the context of the flip is different. So what happened with Mythic Edition that allowed me to sell a whole bunch of copies for double in a very short period of time is that Mythic Edition was only released in the one-day sale on Hasbro Toy Shop. Leading up to that, nobody was really buying out the GPs. But once it was clear that the Hasbro Toy Shop thing had been a kerfuffle and it was sold out and they weren't going to reopen it, um, the GPs started to sell it almost immediately because it, su- it suggested that the, you know, we didn't know up until that point whether it was just going to be sitting around on Hasbro Toy Shop for six months available to purchase. Nobody knew how deep that inventory went or how much of it ha- was going to be posted and whether it was going to be left lying around or whether it had been um, designed to sell out. My current rolling theory on all of the premium products we've seen this year, and we've seen a lot, like this is the most we've ever seen with Magic um, because we had a master set in the spring. We had M25. We had SDCC. We had, sorry, starting this time last year, we had Iconic Masters. Then we had M25. Then we had SDCC in the summer. Then we had Mythic Edition and Ultimate Masters right on each other's heels. What that signals to me is that Wizards is pursuing the high-end segment of the market. So when the average player is complaining about the MSRP, they're forgetting that Wizards doesn't actually owe them um, a chance at buying every product. This is Wizards saying, we're going to go after the people with deep pockets and we're going to ship them a bunch of stuff. Putting aside this, putting aside the social yeah, implications, the bottom line is that they believe they can sell this stuff. But when you look at the difference between Mythic Edition and Ultimate Masters, Mythic Edition not having an LGS component, and it's not even just LGS, right? Like that's what they said on stream, but it's actually LGS plus online sellers, basically anybody who's got a relationship with the distributor. Um, the the difference here is that. With Mythic Edition, a lot of vendors had passed on trying to nail down a lot of product. It wasn't easy to do unless you had bot farms running for you on the online sale. And then for the GPs, you pretty much had to be a vendor that was on, was already planning on being on the floor at a particular GP. And then a lot of that, uh, you know, they might have had their staff go buy 10 or 20 units or whatever, but there was only really 200 and a lot of that had sold out before they could even make a move. And so I think a lot of people were caught napping on Mythic Edition and that's what led to um, the run-up of prices on, on say, eBay, where I was flipping them for 600 bucks. Um, the other big contributing factor is because the 13 GPs only extended the Mythic Edition sale beyond US and Canada in 13 specific cities, um, and half of those were still in the US and Canada, like two of them were Montreal and, and Vancouver, which has yet to occur um, here in Canada. Uh, and I think five of them, if I'm not mistaken, were U.S. cities. And so there was only like a handful smattering around Europe and then one in Australia and one and two in Japan. So Europe gets a small handful, Japan gets two, Australia gets one. That means if you're outside any of those countries, you were still looking to U.S., you know, eBay and other platforms to pick up your copy. So what that says is that you're not going to get the same opportunity to flip really quickly with Ultimate Masters because what's going to happen here is that you're when we as we lead up to the release date, the price may fall or may rise depending on what the final uh, EV calculations look like. You know, me and Saf are both going to publish our e- final EV articles um, on Ultimate Masters, which is going to drive some decision making, um, especially his. 
the YouTube guys are going to have their field day and probably get most of it wrong. Wizards is um, ignoring their customers by charging too much money for magic cards. This isn't what the segment wants. Oh, look, wants it's sold and- out. Wait, wait, oh, it's sold out. I guess we don't know what we're talking about. Um, but the bottom line is that two weeks from now, three weeks from now, leading up to December 7th, if you get your box December like 10th or whatever, and you're looking to flip it, so are a ton of other people who are trying to make a play here. And if you're popping it and trying to sell components of it, tons of dealers are 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 popping it and selling components of it. The market is going to be flooded for a period of time. And the other thing is that that market flooding is taking place leading into um, the lowest point in retail for the year. So right now is a good time to be selling it because this is when people are buying gifts for Christmas. So like if you're in a family where somebody can afford to buy you a $300 gift, they can buy you this. But by the time mid-December rolls around, all the gifts are already purchased, the credit cards are maxed, and retail really tends to trail off between, aside from the Boxing Day sales, from mid-December to like mid-late January, because people are recovering from their holiday debt. And so what I would expect to happen here is just about the same time we're getting peak supply and Ultimate Masters, we should also be hearing, like, hitting the sales lull for the holidays. Which says to me that that's going to be a pretty interesting time to be on eBay late night looking at box toppers that aren't selling as high as they were two weeks well, before. Well, having you know listened to all of this as you've crunched the numbers and and that kind of jives with what I was thinking. But my initial take on all of this, uh, the play that I wanted to make, still sounds very valid, which is I get the feeling your best bet is going to be chasing the uh forgotten box toppers i think ultimately your best dollar is going to be waiting for that first glut of supply to hit the market on december 11th right because it releases december 7th and uh you know keeping an eye on how all of those promos settle and then going in aggressively on the stuff that's in like tier three or tier two so tier one is going to probably be Demonic Tutor, Liliana the Veil, probably Goyf, um, those types of cards. Tier like four is going to be your Lava Claw Reaches, your Balefire Dragon, your, uh, you know, whatever garbage that's floating around in there. But the stuff in two and three that kind of gets overlooked a little bit that you, you know, in Inventions with stuff like Solemn Simulacrum or what have you, where you were able to snag them at, 20 30 40 dollars could end up you know we're hitting 100 you know maybe we're going after 40 50 and 60 dollar promos here uh that end up at 150 or 200 dollars several months later um and i think that's kind of what i wanted to do when i heard about this and it sounds like that still might be a good idea but uh you know everyone's going to be opening those boxes all those toppers are hitting the market and then that's it they're gone Yeah, so there's a couple different ways to go. I think I generally I agree with you, especially if we're talking about which of these are specific to EDH that might be undervalued in Europe. Um, Europe's, you know, getting supply here. It's not like Mythic, Mythic Edition, so that's certainly a valid play. Um, the problem with things like Liliana of the Veil box topper um, is that I think it runs into the same problem that the Expeditions did initially, which is that Expeditions Scalding Tarn um, mm-hmm. started really, really high, right? Um, like four or five hundred dollars, and so to acquire, if you got one in a pack, 
compared to, say, opening a Invention Soul Ring. You can throw that Soul Ring right into your EDH deck, and if you have 10 deck around, if you want to or not, whatever you want, but you don't have to go out and get three more of them. The problem with opening a fo- an Expedition Scalding turn was then you had to question whether you wanted to spend $1,500 to finish the set. And I think that we're going to have the same thing with the box topper Liliana's and Tarmogoyfs and so forth, is that people are going to look at them and go, well, I'm never going to get the other three. I'm not going to play mismatched, so I'm going to sell it because I can get this other stuff I want. You know, like some of the Liliana's have been going over 500, and I think long term, 500 to 1,000 is probably the range for the really good box toppers here. But in the short to midterm, I expect there to be some stagnation in the price where the market prices in the value of the card really early, like it's doing with Liliana and Tarmogoyf right now. And you, you, you have trouble getting a discount on it that is meaningful. So say the market decides that Liliana's are 500. Maybe it's 400, maybe it's 300 when we get to peak supply. Whatever that number is at the time, you might be able to, during a late night auction on eBay, get a $50 off or something. Maybe there's a coupon and you can turn it into 75 off and make it a solid play. Percentage-wise, it might still might not be that exciting. And you might do better on, say, an EDH box topper that gets driven into the ground because people are paying attention to the top 10 box toppers, maybe the top 15. And maybe you want to be looking at 15 to 25 or 15 to 30 to see mm-hmm. where there might be some diamonds in the rough that are being undervalued. I mean, you want some combination, you you want the thing with the highest demand profile that the market hasn't yes. already priced in the yeah. long term. Which is going to require some some detective work, some finessing, some insight, right? That's where the the skill of all of this comes from. But yeah, it does seem like there's some options there. So what's your, exactly. so you've got your case there for the 200 or $900 for the case. Uh, I mean, what are you going to do from here on out? What's your plan? Well, because that's already, I, I actually bought some from Sports and More as well at 265, and I'm seriously considering getting another case at the $1,000 mark from that other supplier on eBay uh, for a couple of reasons. A, I think it's going to be safe. Like, I think that if your average cost is somewhere in the mid 200s, it's going to be hard to go wrong one way or the other. Modern Masters 2017 was, an, I, I think, a, an inferior set and had very similar dynamics overall, did not have a box topper, and it worked out very well. Um, so I think that this set is likely to do, uh, better than M17. And I felt good about those purchases. Um, the, before I decide what I'm going to do, I get to see what's in the set because that comes out on the 19th, 20th and 21st of the month. So 10, 11, 12 days from now. Um, and once we see the full set, if the EV is the best master set ever expect sales to go off the chain, right? Like if that's the if that's what SAF publishes, then and it's making the rounds, then vendors are going to up their prices immediately. Um, and I've heard are you from. Not, are you not concerned about that happening before the spoilers? Because it feels to me like if you want to get in on any more like two sub two seventy five boxes, you probably got to pull the trigger on that soon. I don't know if you're going to get the luxury of waiting until the full spoiler is released. Um, well, uh, I've already purchased mine, right? So I've got six, I've got six. I might go to 10. Um, if I was vaguely considering like trading $10,000 for the cards to like really go deep here, but eh, 
I mean, I, I think there are other options with higher percentage return. My average for the year is still hovering around 90% um, on like nine to 10 month holds. So I'm judging everything by that. And I think that the flip here is going to be worse than Mythic Edition, significantly worse um, in terms of how long you've got to hold and like the percentage return. Um, but it's nice to know that on a $900 case, I probably get the opportunity to flip it for $1,200 flat, like with no matter what. Um, and that the, if it's really for me looking at this is about the culmination of all the information I got from vendors and insiders. It's people telling me this, the, the run is lower than people think people telling me that they're, um, that, you know, we've already seen great mythics and rares that add up to great EV and people telling us that we're going to get even more impressive rares. Um, it's people telling us that it, it's the math that says that even if I give them credit for having 400,000 boxes, there are no more box toppers than there were inventions, but there's 40 box toppers, whereas there was 30 inventions. So, and the demand profile of these box toppers is much higher on average than the inventions. All of that says to me that these masterpieces are going to be very pricey. Um, and all of that combined says to me that I think, you know, mid 200s is very safe. And I've had vendors telling me today that they were going beyond their initial allocations and trying to hunt those deals themselves at like 50 bucks more than they would normally pay because vendors are paying just under 200 um, because they think they're going to be able to sell it high enough to make that worthwhile. Mm. So another way you can go with this is just wait until peak supply, buy the singles you need, buy some extras of the most, the highest um, demand stuff. So when, when, you know, Goyf, mm, it's not getting, seeing a ton of play in modern. So, and it's seen a lot of printings. But things like Snapcaster and Liliana and Cavernous Souls and uh, the new Dark Depths, I think, is a good candidate because it's mythic only. It's got fantastic art. Um, you know, your Emmercools and your Mana Vaults of the world and the foil versions of those are all going to give you opportunities. You can skip the boxes entirely and focus on those. You can also focus on the box toppers, like we said. Uh, looking for the, the diamonds in the rough there. The other way to go with this is go completely the other direction. You can say, forget about Ultimate Masters. I'm going to focus on the cards not printed in it. So I mentioned in my article, you know, Jace the Mind Sculptor wasn't printed in there. Um, I think we're getting that in the next Mythic Edition, but that's neither here nor there. Um, and who knows when that's going to be. Well, I think it's just before the next set, which is part of the reason I think Ultimate Masters is limited in its market presence because we're not that far off the next Ravnica set announcements in early january and then possibly another mythic edition as a follow-up again another premium product for the, like the third time in four months so if that's true they're not going to leave ultimate masters hanging out there on shelves they're going to they've they've constructed it to sell out because there's a lot of value in ha in the hype engine constantly being around premium products that keep selling out <laughs> that's good for the brand that that means that hype is high and and the other thing that people don't get is that the master sets are much higher profit margins for wizards it's printed on the same stock it's cards they've already designed and developed so they barely need they have to construct a, a draft format but you know how much effort do they really put into that compared to building a standard set and there's no new cards yet so and they get to charge two to three times, well, 
yeah, like about three times more than I think that they charge for standard boxes in the distribution chain. If you believe that the cost was like 160-ish to the distributors on this, then, you know, that's the distributors probably pay between 55 and 60 or something on boxes um, for regular standard boxes. So, you know, it's a lot more profit for them. So they're strongly motivated to pursue these premium products despite the lashback from the parts of the community that are sticker shocked by the, the high MSRP. Which is uh, an interesting topic because this feels like something that uh, probably a large portion, this is one of the most dominant ways in which a large portion of our listeners have interacted with this product is the talking heads on social media discussing it. Um, and I know it's been bandied about that it's, you know, this is not what Wizards customers want and they don't understand their base and they're not listening to us when we tell them we don't want this type of product because it's too expensive. Uh, <clears throat> Wizards hears what these people are saying uh, and they don't agree. Like Wizards has a lot of data that we don't um, and such as the, the benefit of being in their position. Uh, and they are looking at the numbers and it's saying our market can support this. Uh, we went from virtually no premium style products uh, on the market. You know, we had Modern Masters, the original Modern Masters, which cost which cost a, a good chunk of change at the time. Uh, but that was it, right? Like there wasn't really anything else that year. And now we're getting like four a year or some, you know, some nonsense that's equivalent to that. But Wizards is not just doing this randomly. They know that if they do it, people will buy it because their numbers are saying, hey, you can keep pushing money into this market segment and people will buy it. So I, I, I guess my point is just when people are telling you that wizards should listen and this isn't what, what we want and blah, 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 like uh, wizards knows what we want better than anyone on YouTube knows what we want. Uh, and if their numbers are telling them that it will sell and clearly it is because they keep ramping up the amount every year, uh, I mean, this is this is this is working out for them. And I mean, you, you know, you can look at the the public perception. Uh, I know that gets m mentioned, and it doesn't look good. Uh, but I'm not entirely sure that's true either. Magic players as a whole are a fairly affluent group. Uh, <clears throat> so I don't know if the the perception on a $350 box is even that big of a deal, right? Like these are not people who who end up here. We're not talking about people who are having difficulty making ends meet for the most part. Like most Magic players are going to be in reasonable shape because this is just simply a difficult game to play uh, in any in any social component, social way. Uh, if you don't have funds available, so I guess that's my mini rant about the people who are complaining that this is too expensive. Sure, and so like. The player in Academy, the professor was, you know, made this a big deal this week and put up a, a video that was quite popular, um, you know, ranting about the set. And he kept asking questions on Twitter about, you know, why don't they listen to us? Like, it's obvious that this is too expensive, blah, 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 blah. And I said, they don't listen because A, we're mostly wrong and the math doesn't agree with us. And B, sometimes they're wrong, but not enough to justify listening to us. And an ex-Wizards design employee um, piped in and said, yeah, like that's pretty much it. <laughs> and then I was talking to Prof afterwards um, in private chat. Oh. And, and we were exploring the concept a little further. And the best analogy I could come up with was like, 
you're a guy in the middle of a village that sells apples and you sell them for a dollar and that's been going on for ages. And then one day you realize that you could grow a superior apple, a more premium apple, and it would only charge you, cost you like 10 cents more to make it, but you could charge $2 to it, but only to a small segment of the population that really loves apples. And so the next day, let's say you magically grew all the apples overnight, you've got the two kinds of apples in front, one for a dollar, one for two, and the majority of your customers are like, I'm not buying $2 apples, apples are a dollar. That is such a ripoff. But the, the apple lovers come by and go, holy shit, this is the best apple I've ever tasted. I will happily pay $2 for that apple because I can afford to pay the $2. And to me, the value of a better apple is double what you have previously been charging me. People have to recognize that not everyone has the same value set, has the same funds available, and that your relative utility for any given product is going to vary. And so a company that you love that makes products that you love might put out products that are not for you. If they sell, then any complaint you make about that product is silly because they've already proven the value of the product at the price point they named by selling it out. Now, if Wizards made 20 times the the amount I'm guessing and they rot it on shelves forever, which is similar to, I mean, they didn't make 20 times for Iconic Masters, but Iconic Masters had trouble in the supply chain where it was lying around for a long time and was available for like half MSRP. And you can make valid critiques about a product like that because they didn't juice it enough. So charging 240 for a box that didn't end up being worth that because a lot of the cards that were in it that were pricey when it was announced didn't have demand profiles strong enough for them to rebound, leading to the devaluation of the product. Right, Which brings us full circle. Ultimate Masters is the apology and correction to that problem. It is almost certainly going to play out as its name suggests. It's going to be the best Masters they've ever made, and they're going to see how that works. And they're going to limit the supply to make sure that it does what it's supposed to do. Puts reprints out into the market, drops prices for a short period of time, then they rebound. Singles market is still healthy, but players have got a shot to get in, and no one can complain about what was in the set because it's it's like the kitchen sink it's like everything you could possibly imagine yeah so there yeah and which is that's completely correct there are complaints that you can levy against master style sets uh and ima is a very good one but they're not it's too expensive it's you didn't execute on the design correctly on the intention of the product correctly uh, which is a valid criticism in what we saw, but that's different than it's too expensive, nobody wants it, uh, which is not the issue as as evidenced by the fact that they sell out of these products every single time, right? Like, or IMA is the first time really that it didn't basically just empty instantly. Um, and even that you could argue was sort of, uh, that was the worst one and it still emptied out. So I, I think it's going to, I think we're going to get to a point here where people are going to be like heading into peak supply in the early part of December. It's going to feel like there is a lot of this out there because there will be because everybody wanted it. So we're all ordering it and we're all getting like a box, two boxes, a case, whatever. And then a lot of people are looking at it as a, a flipping opportunity. So they're going to be jamming the market with singles in too much of a rush to get their money back. So, and then people are going to say, look, see, they made tons of this. You don't know what you're talking about. Get back to me in three months. Get back to me in six months. <laughs> Just as it was with Modern Masters 2017. Watch and wait and see. I guarantee you when we revisit these numbers on these cards in like six months, 
you're going to see rebounds. And by this time next year, a lot of those cards will have made people money. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to try. <laughs> okay. Well, that has been quite the episode here. I hope all of our listeners have found this useful uh, and informative. I'd be surprised if they didn't. Um, James, where can our, uh, our loyal listeners find you? You guys can still find me online, usually on Twitter at MDG Critic, as well as via my weekly or relatively uh, frequent articles on MDGPrice.com. And I am Travis Allen. I'm on Twitter at WizardBumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. I write every Monday for the MTG Price Watchtower series. I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the mtgprice.com Pro Trader service for just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a sweet set of online collection management tools and buy list tools that we're building to drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. I got an upgrade, huh? You like that one? Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, I thought that was a great episode. Uh, if you complain that there is nothing useful here, then you were not listening. Uh, I had a great time and I will see you next week. Thank you, Travis. And we'll see you all next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. Mm-hmm.